Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Star by H.G. Wells, first published in The Graphic, December 1897. Um, that's not the version we're reading today, but I don't know that there's any difference between uh, it and the one that it seems to be, uh, the science will remain the same. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Whose idea was this story? I think it was H.G. Wells. <laughs> to read it, but I the, mean, to read it. The idea of reading it, I, I think I may have suggested it. If, uh, if you did, then I'm grateful to you. I, have, I, have, I heard when I was a kid that this was the second best story in the English language. Oh, wow. That's an impressive claim. Now, now, a lot of stories have been written in the English language since I was a kid. And when I was told this, I wasn't told what was the greatest story. <laughs> so um, I can say that this is the greatest story in the English language that I read as a, as a youngster. <laughs> However, I've just reread it. And uh, by golly, it is a great story. It is pretty yeah. great. I, I'm wondering whoever told you that, that idea that it's the greatest story. I mean, maybe they meant in scope. And in which case, I was wondering, like, what is a what is bigger in scope than this? Um, especially, you know, now it, there might be something bigger in scope now, maybe Olaf Stapleton novel or something. But what is bigger in scope than this is pretty hard to imagine. So to uh, make sure that, that everyone understands what we're talking about, the star is a story in which we get. Uh, the world's viewpoint presented first to one character, then through another character. None of the characters is developed at any length whatsoever, but collectively the whole world is noticing first an astronomer that there's some odd thing going on out toward Neptune, which at the time of writing of this story um, is the furthest out uh, object known to be in our solar system. And um, then it gets closer and closer and bigger and people react to it. And most of the world doesn't even notice it's there. And then it collides with Neptune and the, the collision makes an incandescent body, the star, that gets closer and closer and closer. Uh, the question becomes whether or not it's going to collide with the Earth. But the master mathematician decides that it won't collide. But it gets so close that... It, it ruins uh, the rotation of the Earth. It, uh, it heats up the Earth. We wind up getting, in the course of just a few days, all of the effects of what we would now see as extreme uh, global warming. Uh, there are floods. There are earthquakes. There are volcanoes going off. And then at the end, the star passes. It has not had a direct collision. And because of the new warmth of the world, humanity migrates toward the poles. And some people even think of this as a, a wonderful new chance for humanity. Uh, it reminds one a little bit of uh, Noah's flood, cleansing mm -hmm. the world and giving us a new, presumably cleansed 
opportunity, a, an Eden regained, except now there are two Edens, one at either pole. And then suddenly at the very end, the narrator switches to a Martian viewpoint, which which I think we ought to discuss separately uh, once we've gotten partway into the story, because that switch of viewpoint, I think, is a crucial, crucial aspect of the story as a whole. One of the reasons that the story is so amazing is that one feels the absolute steady crescendo up until, you know, the passing of the star and then that social consequence and then the the shift of viewpoint. The whole story up till, you know, 90 percent of the story is crescendo, crescendo, crescendo of something you hardly notice becoming more and more and more and more important. In that large sense, that absolutely general sense, I think that Wells is giving us an example of something that that happens in life. Although this is clearly a science fiction story, although published before the term science fiction even exists, um, that's true of life. You know, that 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 thing you didn't pay any attention to. Uh, turns out to be uh, the idea that 10 years later um, changes the course of your whole life. That person you didn't pay much attention to uh, across the room suddenly turns out to be someone with whom you spend your whole life. That little mole on the inside of your forearm that you just thought was a a strange protuberance Mm. turns out to be what costs you your whole life. The story conveys that it is compellingly written and it does it without having what we normally assume a short story has to have, which is conflict between characters. Uh, the, the argument that people used to make that science fiction is not really literature because it's about ideas, not people. This story would seem to both make and break that argument. Mm-hmm. It seems to me it is about ideas But those ideas are all people ideas. And listening to that narrator's voice, the story is between us and the narrator, who's reminding us, I think, constantly that the things that are fantastic may really be what define our lives. I I I think it's a, a great story. Catastrophic, but not utterly holocaustic. It leaves humanity hope at the end. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. You, you, your focus is—it's it, those are things all in there. It's my focus is slightly different. What I, what I would say about this story, absolutely, one hundred percent, a science fiction story, and you know the fact that there aren't a lot of characters doing a lot of um, dialogue. There is dialogue, just not much. Um, uh, some people talking to themselves, um, many declarations over and over again. But it's the idea to me of of the fact that, yeah, people look up into the night sky and they see things in the news and are unaffected until uh, it's manifestly upon them. For you know, that point comes up a, a number of times in the story. You know, um, nine out of ten businesses are still open. Um, people are, of course, still having to do the things that they, they need to do to, you know, if you, there's, if, if you're to be a human being, you still need to do the things you need to do. 
breathe and drink water and all those things. But uh, when it zooms in and zooms out, scenes where there's a person laying their hands over uh, someone who's died because not because of the apocalypse that's coming, but rather just because they've died. And they look up at the sky and say, what is that light to me? Um, and it's the mathematician who is kind of a character of humor until the laughing students start paying better close attention or the the schoolboy who works it out on on his own terms it's the the paying attention to the little things that are moving in the heavens uh that really strikes me as as sort of a a wheat chaff moment you know separating the wheat from the chaff um and yet we're all doomed to be poured into the play the same bag you know in a certain sense I think that, as is typical of Wells's best writing, he raises questions hmm. rather than settling them, forcing the reader to think about it. Yes, and you and I are, I think, agreeing perhaps more than than um, than I'm hearing you acknowledge. In fact, the passages you just mentioned are, are ones I have highlighted. Mm. He, he gives us those things. He's asking us to recognize that the small and things that we don't attend to may in fact be life-changing, but he doesn't actually tell us, therefore we need to pay more attention to them. Right. For, for example, with, with the mathematician, the master mathematician, um, he's finally worked out the math. He realizes that the world is not going to end, uh, but he does realize that the, the star is going to come close and will therefore do enormous damage to the earth. Um, it, he says it was a joke among the students. You know, they, they say it's a joke and they try to make fun of him. He can't seem to lecture without chalk and so on. But then he says, as he begins this lecture, the one right after he has spent four sleepless nights, drug induced, um, uh, mental energy circumstances, he says, circumstances have arisen. Circumstances beyond my control, he said and paused, which will deter me from completing the course I had designed. It would seem, gentlemen, I guess all students are female at this point. It would seem, gentlemen, if I may put the thing clearly and briefly, that man has lived in vain. Now, that's... That's the past, the particular one of the particular sentences you were adducing, Jesse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it seems to me it's a spectacularly good one. Uh, there's even a dash written in there. It was briefly that dash. Man has lived in vain. But, you know, when you think about this. He says that is the master mathematician, he goes on to say, I would not have changed anything mm. because I can I can encompass the, the universe. He understands the laws of astronomy. I can encompass the universe in my mind. I would not have changed anything. So how does that jibe with man has lived in vain? You know, yes, I've lived in vain, I guess, if, if all of my plans come to nothing. And if my plan is to uh, 
have, procreate uh, or create an institution that lives after me, then, you know, if the world ends, I've lived in vain. But really, have I? Uh, there's at the end of uh, Last and First Men, uh, 1930 book by Olaf Stapledon, uh, a line that says after the destruction of the world, but it is a good thing to have been the brief music that is man. Mm. And Stapledon, there's a fascinating letter from Stapledon to, to Wells after Stapledon's 1930 book became a bestseller in which Stapledon says, I am so sorry that, um, I did not acknowledge you as all men must. All I've actually read of your work is the star, Mm. this very story. But Stapledon writes, I must have understood it. And like others, I did not give adequate uh, recognition to the very air I breathe. So Stapledon actually gives an answer to this question. He says, no, man has not lived in vain. Wells is saying in the voice of one character that man lived in vain. And then that very same character turns around and says, but I would not have had it be different. Mm -hmm. So he's asking us to think about what this means. Now, that passage comes on the right hand column of a page. On the left hand column, we get um, what I think is sort of a paradigmatic passage of how Wells writes and, and defines much of science fiction of ideas. If I may, I'd li- like to read some of this. Um, this. It begins with people finally noticing that there is this new star in the sky and it is, it is approaching the earth. It is brighter, cried the people clustering in the streets. But in the dim observatories, the watchers held their breath and peered at one another. It is nearer, they said, nearer. So there's a contrast between the, the uneducated observers and the scientific observers, but both are true. Those are both aspects of the same real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It is brighter, it is nearer. And voice after voice repeated, it is nearer. And the clicking telegraph took that up and it trembled along telephone wires. And in a thousand cities, grimy compositors fingered the type, it is nearer. Men writing in offices, struck with strange realization, flung down their pens. Men talking in a thousand places suddenly came upon a grotesque possibility in those words. It is nearer. It hurled along awakening streets. It was shouted down the frost-stilled ways of quiet villages. Men who had read these those things from the throbbing tape stood in yellow-lit doorways about shouting the news to the passers-by. It is nearer. Pretty women flushed and glittering heard the news told jestingly between dances and feigned an intelligent interest they did not feel. Nearer, indeed, how curious, how clever people must be to find out things like that. Lonely tramps faring through the wintry night murmured those words to comfort themselves looking skyward. It has need to be nearer for the nights as cold as charity Mm. don't seem much warmth from it. If it is nearer, all the same. What is a new star to me? Cried the weeping mother, kneeling beside her dead. Now, that I find an utterly exquisite passage. Mm -hmm. 
brighter and nearer become interchanged. The relationship between the scientifically educated and the uneducated becomes clear. That between the wealthy and the poor becomes clear. That between those in the city and those outside, clear. Everything is bound together by the natural phenomenon and bound together by the telegraph and bound together by people in their jobs. It goes on, it builds, it builds and builds, and it ends with a question. You know, it's not when you read that line, what is a new star to me, cried the weeping woman kneeling beside her dead. It doesn't mean the star is nothing. Mm -hmm. It just means she can't think of what it means because she's overwhelmed by the loss of her child I, or, or, or lover or whatever. Um, what does it mean? She's not really focusing on answering that question, but I think Wells wants us to. Mm -hmm. What does the world mean when it's only of interest to us because it's ours? Um, man has lived in vain if it's not his world. And yet, if all we care about is the world, it's not man's. And if all we care about is the man, is, is man's world, then we don't notice all of the things that make our lives. The, the relationship between the mechanical and the, and the animate, between the educated and the uneducated, the city and the country, all of these things that are traditionally thought of in culture as somehow oppositions, Wells is suggesting need to be understood as supplements, as somehow working together. So I would push a little further. There are references throughout to the star of Bethlehem, to the star of the mm -hmm. East. And at some point, this becomes the star of the West. And it would be easy enough to see that this is somehow a, a contradiction. The churches are closed because the, the, some of the priests don't want to give people the chance to pray because they think that this notion that there is a second coming is just a fantasy. So it looks like it could be an anti-clerical story among its other targets. But in fact, this star does bring a new utopia. It does give us paradise regained. It tells us that Noah's flood might really have worked. And so if we tell a different story about it, does that make it any worse? Which is, of course, the question we have to ask for science fiction. If we make up a story, does it make it any less true? It's true. I would I would note um, it's not just Stapleton. Obviously, Stapleton, <laughs> you could feel it. Whether I didn't know about that letter, but uh, I, you could totally feel it in Stapleton. And um, how could one not uh, make the association? It'd be it'd be possible that he'd come off with his his own kind of writing without it. But it it absolutely feels in touch with the same material. Many, many owe great debt to Wells for being the pioneer that he was. Um, I think of a couple of stories right off the bat that are very, very influenced by this one. Um, uh, one we've done on this show, uh, A Pail of Air by Fritz Leiber, is set in an apocalyptic uh, scenario very similar to this one. Uh, a dense body passed near the earth tore away the moon tore away the earth and we've gone off our 
planet has gone off in orbit around this new star, this black star. And that story is one of a kind of hope and renewal in, in the destruction of the Earth as well. But instead of it being, you know, a new Garden of Eden, it's a new um, uh, atomic Eden in a certain sense, right? It's the it's the energy of atomic uh, power plants that will keep us warm and keep us uh, safe uh, in a new world with no air in the sky except that it's come down as snow yeah um he wrote a novel as well um the wanderer which is basically an expansion of this short story into novel length as far as i can see there's um arthur c Clarke's the star which as you point out (laughs) the star of bethlehem um, that is the story of a priest headed to a uh, new or on on the way back from a, an archaeological expedition to a uh, solar system that had been destroyed in a uh, catastrophic uh, nova and the preservation of its society in at the edge of the solar system instead of it being uh, Neptune being thrown off it's the neptune is the planet that in their solar system where they preserve in kind of a museum of their society what was their living in vain or not actually the last line of that story the 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 narrator of that clark story is a jesuit priest who's also the astrogator on the expedition and as they're leaving he realizes that uh that the light from that star uh, was, in fact, uh, the star of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. That's what was visible on the earth. And we've seen the marvelous, marvelous civilization that was destroyed by that planet's star going supernova. The last line is something like uh, this priest says, but did you have to destroy them to give hope? to humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a strange answer to Wells's novel, right? a strange answer, mm-hmm. but it also depends upon that shift of viewpoint. Yep. About, uh, about three quarters of the way through this book, uh, through this novel, I'm, so, I'm sorry, <laughs> through this short story, um, w- things the, the narrator suddenly comes up for consideration. Now, for us modern readers, Wells's way of telling a story is very easy because he, he made it easy for us. He did it so well. Uh, we have no trouble having somebody talk about the future as if it were the past. Um, but Wells actually made this happen in ways that are quite different from And Then I Woke Up. Now, About three quarters of the way through the story, the narrator, who's just been telling us these things, says, but you must not imagine because I have spoken of people praying through the night and people going aboard ships and people fleeing toward mountainous country that the whole world was already in a terror because of the star. And suddenly, if you're really a thoughtful reader and a slow reader, you might say, wait a minute, who is the you who is being spoken to and who is the I who's supposedly listening? But that goes away, right? I mean, that's that one comment until we get to the end. Uh, At the end, 
after we know that, in fact, um, humans have moved toward the poles, we get this final paragraph. Right, let me read the line before it says, nor of the movement of mankind now that the earth was hotter northward and southward toward the poles of the earth. That's he won't discuss that. It concerns itself, this story, only with the coming and the passing of the star. And then the last paragraph. The Martian astronomers, for there are astronomers on Mars, although they are different beings from men, were naturally profoundly interested by these things. They saw them from their own standpoint, of course. Considering the mass and temperature of the missile that was flung through our solar system into the sun, one wrote, it is astonishing what little damage the Earth, which it missed so narrowly, has sustained. All the familiar continental markings and the masses of the seas remain intact, and indeed, the only difference seems to be a shrinkage of the white discoloration, supposed to be frozen water, round either poles, which only shows, the narrator now continues, how small the vastest of human catastrophes may be, seem at a distance of a few million miles. What, what Wells is doing there is asking us to really recognize Everything can be reframed. Everything can go into new perspective. It, it's reminiscent of that line from, from Shakespeare's Lear, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport, right? The enormous changes of scale between the gods and us, us and the flies, between the astronomical and, and the local, between the vision from Mars and those millions and billions who died in that cataclysm. All those differences of scale science fiction makes available to us. But the question still remains, whose vision? Who says the Martian astronomers, for there are astronomers on Mars, although they are different beings from men? It doesn't say although they are different beings from us. This is not some imagined future human telling this story. This is some narrator who has a more Olympian view than either humans or Martians. Is this a god? It's unclear. It's, it's, a, it's a being kind of like us in a certain sense, able to look at things under a microscope and zoom in and zoom out. <clears throat> that zooming in and zooming out that happens to me is in that line uh, what is a new star to me asked the weeping woman kneeling beside her dad she she doesn't know what it means to her the person she's loving is dead if you survived this apocalypse it doesn't mean um, the same thing as if you died but when you're at a distance of a million or a billion miles uh, from the Earth, you're going to see it, oh, not much has changed. And this this thing that this story does is, is it allows us to zoom out of our daily, minuscule, petty worries and not so much worry about a bigger thing, but put them in context and put them in in a frame where they're not as 
worrisome. Or or maybe make them more important. I uh, I, I don't think we have the time, given our, our practice in these conversations, Jesse, to, to make the point I'd like to make with the detailed evidence. But let me say um, that the first three paragraphs of this story, um, it was the first day of the new year. There's this huge isolation of the solar system. Something was crossing the gulf of space until early in the 20th century. This wanderer appeared is, in fact, an echo or a a prediction of the first paragraph of the War of the Worlds. No one could have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man. And then across the gulf of space, minds that are to ours are as are ours to those of the beasts that perish. Intellects vast, cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. And early in the 20th century came the great disillusionment. The War of the Worlds was written, published serially um, in 1897, published as a book in 1898. The Star was written and published in 1897. Both of these works ask us to understand how we need to see ourselves in multiple ways, framing and reframing with this astronomical scales. But in the star, we have no characters, or I should say we have individuals like that woman who attracts so much attention, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But we have no one character who ties it together and takes us through what it means. In the War of the Worlds, we do. That narrator who is ever searching for his wife and finds her at the end. So Wells has natural catastrophe in the story. He has enmity, actual war in the novel. But philosophically, they are twins. And one day you and I should have a conversation about what was going on in the world and in Wells's life in 1897, that these two monuments of English literature arose together. But there's always more to say. <laughs>